The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, uh, some of that is present in our story and the scriptures this morning. I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 31. Genesis chapter 31, uh, you'll see that there's 55 verses to this chapter. We're going to read the whole chapter. I'll just give you the advance notice. We're going to read the whole thing. It is a bit long, but it's a, it's a, a wonderful part of the narrative. We've been looking at the life of Jacob, who is the third generation of what the, we call the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the original family story of the grace of God and the covenant of grace uh, as it unfolds in history, recorded in the book of Genesis, as Moses writes this story down for us. Uh, Jacob's life is uh, something of a mixed bag because Jacob is a man who is very much given uh, to deceit and deception and lying and scheming, and as a result, oftentimes finds himself in Uh, messes that are very much his own doing, very much his own responsibility. But Jacob's life is a life under promise. Jacob's life is a life under God's covenant. And God had promised Jacob, Jacob, for all of your wanderings and all of your going and coming, I promise to always be with you. And in my promise to always be with you, Jacob, I promise to bring you home. And not just home geographically back to a particular place, but Home to me, God promises Jacob, so that you can find your home in the knowledge of me as your God. Now, uh, we've been finding Jacob in the last couple chapters uh, in the land of Laban, who is his father-in-law, as Jacob uh, ends up now with uh, two wives. And uh, life has been difficult for Jacob under Laban's hand. Laban has uh, been a deceiver to rival Jacob's own deception, and Jacob has really uh, truly suffered in one respect, but he has also increased in another respect as despite Laban's hardships, God has been blessing Jacob. And these tensions arrive at a head point now where Jacob is going to separate and come underneath uh, and away from uh, Laban's uh, control and indeed his deception. Jacob is going to separate himself from Laban and uh, be set back home uh, to be bound for the promised land Uh, as it were. So that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures. Great God, we bow now in Your presence, thankful that You are a God of revelation, who reveals, uh, who, who pulls back the curtain, as it were, to speak and reveal Your truth to Your people. Uh, Lord, we know that You speak everywhere in all places, and that in creation there is the the, the seen, visible testimony that You are the Creator God, but we know, Lord, that we cannot know who You are apart from Your divine speech. And so we believe that the Scriptures are that very thing, Your divine revelation, not just that there is a God, 
but who that God is. And so, Lord, as you reveal yourself to your people in your word, may we in this generation hear your sovereign voice. And as a result of hearing your voice, come into the knowledge of you as our God, just as you've called Jacob. So, Lord, bless now the reading and hearing and proclamation of your word. May the seed of the scriptures find good soil in our hearts and bring forth fruit to the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God, Genesis 31, Jacob flees from Laban. This is the word of God. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The stripes shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And the angel of the Lord said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padamaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him what he, that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the country of Gilead. And when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm." But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away, because you longed greatly for your father's house. 
But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that we may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the ram of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself, for from my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered, and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? For these my daughters, or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar, and Jacob took his kinsmen, said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Shahadtha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, The Lord watch between me, you and me, when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and a pillar, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God does indeed abide forever. So, so, this is quite a chapter and this is quite a narrative. And let me say very clearly, uh, this is uh, continuing to be the theme of Jacob's messy life. And we think here for a minute uh, always that God is at work in the midst of the mess. God is at work in the midst of the mess. And that's because 
all of God's work of redemption is in the context of this fallen world with all of its messy realities. Your life and mine is often messy, and the characters of the Bible's lives are likewise uh, oftentimes struck with different messes and circumstances. And we would rather it be the case that why can't, why can't God work out His purposes in the midst of very neat and tidy packages that can be carefully wrapped, delicately put on the shelves, and we could just, at our own ease and leisure, take off it and learn the lesson and move on in nice, tidy packages. And that's because uh, God works in a fallen world with all of its messes, and so His ways are oftentimes intermingled in our messy situations. God's ways aren't always seemingly linear. It seems sometimes that He's at work over here, and then He's at work over there, and it's hard for us to trace and connect the dots. But nevertheless, God is at work always to accomplish His purposes. And God is very much at work here in chapter 31 to accomplish His purposes of blessing Jacob and calling him back to his homeland. But we want to see very clearly, how is it? How is it that God is at work in Jacob's life? Uh, And of course, what can we take from it? I want us to see that God's direction, both in Jacob's decision to leave, Jacob's actual leaving, and then the courage that he draws from leaving Laban's homeland. God's direction in Jacob's decision to leave, his actual leaving, and his courage in the process. And and while we see that, hopefully we can also see very significantly what you and I can learn by way of spiritual application, how this chapter is very much relevant to us as the people of God living in our time and living in our place. So, first of all, let's see Jacob's decision to leave in the first place is very much directed by God. Go back to the beginning of the chapter for all of its length. Go back to the beginning and notice how Jacob, Jacob sees the writing on the wall. He sees that his presence is no longer welcome amidst his brother-in-laws and his father-in-law. In verse 1, he sees that his brother-in-laws despise them. His brother-in-laws despise Jacob because they see Jacob as now owning the things that they believe should have been rightfully theirs. Uh, the son-in-law has taken the father-in-law's flocks and the, and the sons of the father believe that it was rightly theirs. They don't want Jacob around anymore. He also sees in verse 2 that his situation with Laban himself has really lost favor. In verse 2 it says Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before because it was the case that Laban saw that many of the blessings that were coming to Laban were a result of Jacob's presence. And Jacob's God was blessing Laban, but now Laban just sees that Jacob is a problem. Jacob is seen as something of a parasite to Laban. And Jacob perceives all these things that he is not regarded with favor by his in-laws. The Lord comes to Jacob then and says in verse 3, Jacob, it's time for you to leave this place. You know that you're not well received, but I've given you a promise. Look there at verse 3. The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. That's the great point of really this whole chapter, that Jacob is being called back, back home, where God has given a promise that he will indeed go. And I want us to see something of development in Jacob. You know, we've been somewhat hard on Jacob throughout these various weeks and months because as he has made foolish decisions, we've been unashamed to simply say, that was wrong, or that was foolish, or that was a misstep. So inasmuch as we've been critical of Jacob, let's take the opportunity to see that this actually demonstrates some spiritual maturity in Jacob, finally. There's a development here. 
Notice how Jacob is willing to submit to God's Word. God's Word comes to Jacob, and Jacob says, Yes, Lord. He submits, waits for God's to, he waits for God to speak, and then he acts. That's a sincere wisdom. But not just does he listen, he waits for the opportunity to obey God's Word. He waits for the wisest opportunity to take God's Word and apply it. Because if you scan down to verse 19, Laban's going to go shear sheep. And Jacob knows that God's calling him home. And the opportunity of Laban going away is the opportunity for Jacob to go away. That is to say, he looks for the opportunity of God's providence that matches what God has said in His Word and says, now is the time to act. So he's increasing in wisdom in his ability to understand and apply God's Word that he is submitting to. He submits. He waits for the opportunity to apply God's Word. And then he also seeks out something of counselors here as well. Notice that Jacob goes to his wives there, Leah and Rachel, and he tells them, he tells them the, the circumstances of his life that they would have well known that he's been with their father now 20 years, 14 of which were spent serving him in order for him to marry his wives, and then another six spent for the flocks. And Leah and Rachel see the dignity and maturity and development of Jacob. They see that the Lord has blessed Jacob and they are willing to listen to God's word that he's given to Jacob. And they essentially come to the conclusion with Jacob, if, you, if God has said this, you should do it. And we'll follow you and we'll go with you. We see that Jacob reminds his wives of uh, what happened in chapter 28. There in verse 13, Genesis 31, 13, he says uh, that God told me, I am the God of Bethel, and where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me, arise and go to this place. Uh, notice, Jacob's motivation for leaving and his explanation to his wives isn't going to be, hey gals, listen, I'm going to trick your dad here. It's, I want to obey what God has said. It's not, I want to, I want to sneak away. It's, I want to obey God's word. And Leah and Rachel consent to this because they realize that everything that Jacob has is everything actually that belongs to them as well from their father's household. And Laban had no intention whatsoever to bless his daughters and send them away full, but rather he would have taken from them. And so they come to the same conclusion in verse 16 that everything that's been given to you, Jacob, is actually ours and our children's. This is good and right. Jacob is saying, I want to trust this God and I intend to obey and we will go together. And uh, Rachel and Leah say yes. Now, from this, I think we should see, again, Jacob's development, his spiritual maturity. In fact, if you scan ahead into verse 38, he, he mentions the fact about these 20 years. 20 years Jacob's been learning this lesson. That's over time, right? That's a long haul. And God has proven Himself faithful to Jacob. But you know, of course, that that was never the issue. It was never the case that God had to prove Himself. But rather, it was the case that Jacob had to learn to trust that God was faithful. Jacob had to learn to believe God's Word and live upon it. Jacob had to learn to trust. But good grief, 20 years? What were you doing 20 years ago? That's a long time. Some of you weren't even here 20 years ago. 
And it's taken Jacob this long to learn that God's Word is good and true and he can stand upon it. Imagine God gave you a promise 20 years ago and you had to sit on it and wait and wait and wait. We could maybe give Jacob maybe a little bit of a reprieve here, perhaps. And oftentimes when we wait and wait and wait, we come to the conclusion, my goodness, why is God so slow to work His purposes out? Right? All this waiting, what is God doing? He's on my clock here and why is He taking so long? Not realizing that it's not the case that God is slow, but rather that to insult us all, we are slow. We are slow to accept His purposes. We are slow to accept His timing. We are slow to embrace the fact that He does, in fact, know what He is doing. So Jacob, Jacob is the one who has learned to trust. Not that God is ever slow. In fact, God is always on time as the sovereign creator of time. But His work in us oftentimes seems slow because we are slow to obey it. So, Jacob has finally come now to a place of, in spiritual maturity, embracing God's Word and God's direction. And so God says to Jacob, Jacob, it's time to go home. In a sense, it seems that you finally learned the lesson that I brought you here to learn. I finally got through to you, Jacob. It's time to go home. So, Jacob is directed by God his intent to leave, but then also his going. Jacob's flight is directed by God as well. In fact, if you look back at the end of chapter 30 at verse 43, Genesis 30 verse 43 reminds us of Jacob's meteoric financial rise. That the man who came to the land of Laban with nothing now has, in the language of Genesis 30 43, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, and camels and donkeys, and it's time to move everything out. It's time to leave. And this is hard to do expeditiously. There's no moving company that Jacob can call here now. He's got to navigate everyone to leave Laban's household. The great journey home is now beginning after these 20 years. So verse 17 says of Genesis 31, So Jacob arose and sent his sons and his wives on camels. And he drove away all his livestock and all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he acquired. And this is no small feat. And he had to wait for just the right time. And Laban's gone out to shear the sheep. And now Jacob, it seems, has finally overcome the great deceiver, Laban himself. And God is going to protect Jacob and ensure a legitimate separation. But notice that the action picks up pretty quickly. There in verse 22, Jacob has three days head start. And it takes seven days for Laban to overcome him. And so he is hotly pursued. This is something of an action movie that's happening here in the middle of uh, chapter 31. Uh, This detail, though, in verse 31, verse 24, that as Laban is on the way, just before he's about to overtake Jacob, so Jacob's God says to him, Laban, watch your step. Watch your word. Watch what you say to Jacob. In the language there, Genesis 31, 24, be careful not to say anything to Jacob. In a sense, leave him be. Leave him be. And does Laban listen? Well, Laban overtakes Jacob. And right away he is uh, impugning him and questioning his character. What have you done there in verse 26? Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? 
Why have you just left me? Why have you up and fled away? Why did you not give me the chance to say goodbye? Surely I would have celebrated you and I would have given you a party on your way out. Now we know he's being disingenuous, don't we? We know Laban has no intent whatsoever to bless Jacob on the way out because Laban sees that Jacob has taken everything from him. And he goes on berating him with the details of what we know from verse 19 that Jacob's wife Rachel has stolen from her father. Jacob doesn't know this. Moses is helpful to give us that detail that Jacob doesn't know that his wife stole the household gods from Laban. Even though Laban asked there in verse 30, why did you steal my gods? Jacob doesn't say, I didn't steal your gods. He says, search them out and if you can find them, I'll kill the person who has them. That's how sure I am, in fact, that I didn't steal them. Jacob unknowingly pronounces a death sentence upon his own wife, who did, in fact, steal her father's household gods. And you say, this story has all kinds of twists and turns and drama and action. Why did Rachel steal these things? What are they anyway? They probably would have been just little trinkets, little statues. Why did Rachel, in verse 19, steal her father's household gods? Not because... Not because she worshipped them like her father did. Because if she had, she wouldn't have stuffed them in a box and sat on them. She would have put them in a place of prominence and bowed down before them as her father did and she saw him doing his whole life, her whole life. Why did she steal them? Not because she worshipped them? Well, maybe because she knew how much Laban prized them and she didn't want those gods to come to Laban's aid as she was fleeing with her husband and all their household. Maybe she didn't want those gods to come to Laban's aid, and if she took them, then Laban couldn't employ their powers. Or maybe perhaps, and I am more convinced, that the whole thing is just to display something of a mockery of the whole thing. Rachel has stolen her father's household gods, so what will you do now? What will you do now when your god is in a box and I'm sitting on on a camel? What will you do now when your God is small enough to fit in a box and be sat upon a camel to display this foolish idolatry? But Laban wants to know, why have you done this? Why have you done this to me? He searches them out. He can't find them. And then he comes to the head here where there is this firm interaction. Laban says, why have you done this? Again, verse 26 and following. And Jacob says, I was afraid. I'm fleeing from you because I was afraid. You've cheated me so many times. You've changed my wages ten times. I've been with you twenty years. You've done nothing but make my life difficult and attempt to swindle me and keep things that are rightfully mine. God has protected Jacob in the midst of this flight. Laban never finds the household gods. And true to be sure, this involves Rachel's stealing and even her own lying. You could ask, where did she learn it from? She learned it from her own dad. All this trickery in the first place. And my point in all of this is that here is God at work in the mess of this uncomfortable, strange situation to bring about His covenant purposes and promises. Protecting Jacob. Protecting his household. Not allowing Laban to find the stolen idols. And then something happens that's finally wonderful in Jacob's life. Because from verse 36 onward... It seems that Jacob now has fully, finally 
come into himself. He's finally come into the man that God has called him to be because now Jacob's courage is going to be directed by God. His plan to leave was directed by God. His leaving was directed by God. And now we see some courage in Jacob that's directed by God as well. Look at verse 36. In Genesis 1 verse 36 says, Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob finally rises up in the presence of Laban. You could read it as he, he puffs off his chest in front of his father-in-law and finally has a bit of courage to himself. Now, what is courage? What is courage? Courage isn't not being afraid, but courage is knowing that we have greater reasons to be confident in the face of fear. Jacob finally has courage, and his courage comes from the Lord it's a VBS verse from a couple years ago, Psalm 56. Whenever I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Laban could have come down upon Jacob, brought the thunder upon Jacob, but Jacob finally has risen up to say, I'm strong in the Lord and in obedience to the Lord. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. And Jacob now rises up and finally speaks. Jacob, who has seemingly trembled and been foolish and been tricked, now has courage himself. It reminds me of uh, the man William Wilberforce from uh, a couple centuries ago in England. Uh, he was the man who's principally responsible for speaking against the slave trade in, in England. He was the politician that rose up against that, became a Christian believer, and he was a man of small stature. But it was said in the legislature that when William Wilberforce stood up with courage and in the boldness of God, they witnessed the shrimp turning into a whale before their very presence. Because William Wilberforce, as small of a man of stature though he was, knew he was in the right because he was obedient to God's Word and he had courage. God can give His people courage in the face of things that they fear. God can give His people courage not for their own sake, but in order that they would trust Him and walk further into obedience, though it would mean that there would be difficulty and hardship and things that would create fear for them. He gives them courage to stand. He gives them courage to press on refusing to bow down to the threats and instead to stand for God Himself. God can give you courage to obey Him despite your circumstances. I think we can take that as a lesson. God can give you courage to be unashamed, to stand for His purposes in the midst of that which threatens you, but biblical courage means that you don't bow down to the threats and fears. You stand for the Lord. Biblical courage. Jacob has that here as he launches in in verse 36 through 42 into his longest speaking recorded in Scripture. Jacob just says a few things here and there throughout the past successive chapters, but verse 36 through 42 has this speech that he gives to Laban where he essentially says, look man, enough. I'm putting a stop to this for these reasons. And it results in a covenant between he and Laban. The promise of a peaceful separation. Laban has pursued Jacob. Jacob stands up to him and says, from this point on, there's going to be a separation and we're going to agree to the terms of it. That's the covenant that they're making here. Sworn each according to their God. And at this point, it seems that the purpose of the narrative is simply saying, this is how Jacob secures his exit from Laban's household. They secure a covenant and they go their separate ways. 
They promise not to pass over the, the heaps of stones or the line to cross. Such will say, you're going to let me go in peace and I'm going to let you go in peace and we will not pursue this issue further. But really, I think the issue seems to be that this covenant is witnessed according to their God. And it is emphasizing the difference between Jacob, the man of the covenant, and Laban, the man of household gods and idolatry. I think that's really the distinction here. Because Laban is going to go away. There in verse 45, Laban's going to leave. And it seems he's going to leave without his gods that he never found. Laban is reduced. Jacob now possesses the wealth. Jacob now possesses the herds. Jacob has the family. And Laban is a man reduced. He goes away without his gods that couldn't save him. They fit in a box. They get carted around on a camel. And it's a sad thing to be beholden to idols. You know, there's a, great, there's a really wonderful story. Uh, my, my grandfather was a ruling elder at a Presbyterian church in Philadelphia. And he served underneath a minister named Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was uh, really quite famous in his time. He was a boisterous man. Uh, his, uh, his, his illustrations were really quite personal. He told the story one time about this man in Philadelphia who was a man of really great prominence in civic organizations. He was quite wealthy. He was a fabulous donor. Uh, but he was no Christian whatsoever. And in fact, he made it known that he was no follower of Jesus Christ. And he was proud of himself in this regard that he didn't need anybody for anything and he had it all within himself. And this man uh, took up upon himself an incurable cancer. And Donald Gray Barnhouse went to visit this man in the hospital who was known for great renown for all of his resources now coming under incurable cancer. And Donald Gray Barnhouse went there and he had to wait his turn because all the different civic organizations were coming in a sense to pay homage to this man, perhaps to get a last minute donation from him or whatnot. And Donald Barnhouse, the pastor, finally got a moment to sit with that man and he said, what are you doing here? And uh, Barnhouse said, well, you've made it quite clear that you have everything in and of yourself and you don't need anyone. Isn't that right? And he said, yeah, that's right. And Donald Barnhouse, in typical cheekiness, says, I've come to watch a man like that die. I've come to watch someone who is so secure in themselves be faced with the reality of their mortality. And the man's response said everything that needed to be said. He broke down, weeping, expressing actually that he had no true peace or assurance that his God was no use to him because his God was himself. So Barnhouse could then proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who saves sinners, people who think that they are sufficient within himself, speaking the hope of the gospel to this man who did indeed receive and rest upon Jesus and then say to Barnhouse, make sure you tell my friends what you've just told me once I'm dead and gone because they don't know it either. Say it at my funeral. I think that places this emphasis here on Laban as a man whose hopes are ultimately in himself and in the wrong place. The emphasis in the narrative is, is that you can set your hope upon the living and true God or you can set your hope upon your household gods, your idols, those things which actually can't save you. And if we are tempted to say to ourselves, you know, those silly ancient people from thousands of years ago, doesn't anybody know? We don't have household gods anymore. Do we not? Do we not? 
If perhaps sports teams and smartphones and our hobbies or our children's activity schedules become the things that we bow down to and give our ultimate allegiance to them, they may not be bad things in and of themselves, but they become ultimate things and ultimately idols when we give them our first love and supplant the worship that is due to God alone and we give it to these created things. That's what Laban has done. To lose sight of the privilege of knowing the true and living God who pardons our sins and we are the recipients of His patience and instead to have our household gods bow down and serve them. That's Laban. But then there's Jacob, isn't there? Jacob who speaks in verse 42 and verse 53 about the fear of Isaac. Notice he uses this language, the God of my father, the God of Abraham, The awesome God is what that means, who inspires fear and dread. Jacob is saying to Laban, Laban, my God is living and true. My God, Laban, is not to be trifled with. It's something of a warning to Laban, to be sure. But I think you should see it as also a lesson that Jacob is embracing himself. That my father's God, my grandfather's God, is my God now, to be sure. I've set my face to Him to obey His Word and trust Him and walk in obedience to Him and I will not turn another way. We could say it this way, that Jacob is here owning the covenant for himself. Now pay very close attention to this because I think this is the most important part of this chapter. Owning the covenant is something that every one of us must do for ourselves. Owning the covenant means saying, this God is my God. He is the God of my mother or the God of my father, the God of my grandmother or the God of my grandfather, to be sure, but He must also be mine. It's not enough that He is the God of my father. He must be my God too. And Jacob says, this God is my God. I want you to see how Jacob's journey parallels yours. Ours. Jacob's journey parallels the life of a Christian. Jacob himself, as a child of the covenant, would have been circumcised, received the sign of the covenant, which is the exact thing that we do here at this font. Receives the sign of the covenant, so to embrace the call of God to say, you are my child. And Jacob would have been reared in the confidence of saying, you are a child of God, just as we raise our covenant children to be the children of God. But at some point in their lives, don't they? Those children have to grow up. Those children have to grow up who were at one point carried to the font must bring themselves forward and stand on their own two feet and say, I embrace for myself that this God is my God. It's something of Genesis 28 of the Bethel scene where Jacob as a younger man says, Lord, if you go with me, I'll call you my God. He is something of experiencing the rite of confirmation crossing the threshold of a communicant member of the church, as you were, that Jacob as a younger man in chapter 28 says, Lord, yeah, I'll I'll take you as my own. You'll be my God. But now, 20 years later in chapter 31, it's been 20 years since Genesis 28, now at Gilead, Jacob for himself puts a few thousand miles on the profession of Genesis 28 and says, Lord, now, now, I will have you as my God. 
He proves it and he owns it for himself. And this patterns a reality for our own lives as well. Let me say it very, very clearly and very directly, especially, first of all, to young people, young children, especially those of you who have been uh, confirmed in this church. You don't need to let 20 years go by of suffering the pains of foolish decisions before you embrace God to be your God and own the covenant for yourself. Don't see your confirmation as some kind of final hoop to jump through and then walk away, but stay and commit and steady yourself in the profession of faith that you have made as a teenager so that profession can mature into adulthood. Or if you're a person later on in life, if you have not already begun to make serious commitments about the, 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 where your family stands and the priorities of your family, to, to draw the line and say, this God is our God, and there are things that are calling for our time and attention and love and obedience that we're going to say no to because we're saying yes to our God. And that's going to make you look different from your neighbors, and it's going to make you look different from your peers, and you've got to come to terms with that. To know that it's the right thing to be obedient to your God and say no to lesser things when God calls you to obey Him or perhaps at any age of life that you are in to not let some lesser God and idol have your love and obedience but to continue to confess the one true and living God as our God, His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's always the point and Jacob is developing in spiritual maturity to be that man that God is calling him to be and God is calling you to be the man or woman that He's calling you to be as well in obedience, in confidence, in courage, oftentimes in the face of difficulty and in messy situations, but to be the person that God is calling you to be, which is fundamentally a person of love and obedience to your God. Jacob patterns that development of spiritual maturity here, which is what we all need. And Jacob's going to go home now. He's going to go home singing, grace has led me safe thus far, and grace will... Lead me home. Or he could use the words of the hymn that we're going to sing just now. Listen to this. Perverse and foolish, often I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulders gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. Like a shepherd who goes after the wandering sheep and lovingly tucks the sheep up upon his shoulder, the Lord is going to lead Jacob home. And you know the best part about it? It is that it's the same good shepherd who does the same thing for you. When you stray or when you struggle, to put you up upon his shoulder and lead you safely home. Through the mess, to lead you safely home. What a great God we serve indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks to You, Lord, for Your Word and for Your truth. We pray now that You would indeed as we've prayed already, plant it deeply within us and that by Your Holy Spirit bring about the fruit of obedience that we would indeed be courageous in our confession that You are our God and Savior. And Lord, as we do, receive glory from Your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington epc.org. May God bless and keep you.